So who's all going to see this podcast? Hopefully the whole world. <laughs> Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. We're pulling another one out of the archives. This one's with my name t- twin, Dr. Richard E. Bennett. In case you wanted to know, I'm Rick C. Bennett. And uh, we're going to talk about temple work. Dr. Bennett has done some amazing work. He's a professor at BYU in church history. Um, but he's really done some amazing work, uh, once again, on the uh, evolution of temple ordinances. I was really surprised to hear him say that uh, a lot of our endowments for the dead were a result of spiritualism, uh, which is some of the um, like Ouija boards and things like that that were really popular after the Civil War um, and, and even a little bit later. So um, that's really interesting. We'll also talk about the Kirtland Temple, and he's just got some amazing insights. Um, so I think you will enjoy my name twin, Dr. Richard Bennett. So check out our conversation. Welcome to Gospel Tangents Podcast. My name is Rick Bennett. I'm here with uh, my my name twin, Richard E. Bennett. I'm Richard. Yeah, I'm Richard C. Bennett. My dad is also Richard C. Bennett. So there's at least three Richard Bennett's that I know. So this will be a little c- confusing. But I go by Rick. Uh, what would you like me to call you? I go by Dick. Dick. Uh-huh. Okay. Or Richard. Or Richard. More formally. More formal. Okay. Mine's Richard E. Bennett. Richard E. Yeah. So I'm Richard C. So I, I usually go by Rick and. Uh, where do, you, where do your Bennett's come from? So my my Bennett's come out of Philadelphia. But before the United States? I don't know. I'm stuck in Philadelphia. I can't get out of there. It's 1765. We need to talk after and see if we can figure out how to get me out of Philadelphia. But uh, No relation there. I found a um, bankruptcy notice that uh, Abel Bennett filed bankruptcy, and that's all I know. In Philadelphia? In Philadelphia. So he was born in 1765, I think. So, um, actually, I, f- I did find out that he, uh, I found a pension record for the Revolutionary War, so I go back to the Revolution. <laughs> so. Mine come from Devonshire, England. Okay. It came over in about 1840. Do you have anybody in uh, Philadelphia? No, they're all Canadian. All Canadian. So, yours all Canadian. So, all right. As far as I know. Well, anyway, so I'd like to introduce you. Uh, I checked out your Wikipedia page, so you'll have to correct me if any of this information is wrong. But I understand you got a PhD in at Wayne State University. I think it was in history. Is that- American intellectual history, they called it. Okay. Also in public history, archival management. Okay. And then uh, where did you get your undergraduate? And- I got my master's degree here. At BYU. In, in American history okay. with Marvin Hill as my chair. Okay. Professor Marvin Hill, whose work on Joseph Smith is quite significant. That's where I really got interested in the Prophet Joseph with Marvin Hill. And then I got my bachelor's here in English literature. Okay. So I got my BA here at BYU and my MA here at BYU and my PhD in Detroit, Michigan, Wayne State University. Okay. So how did the guy from Canada come spend all this time at BYU? Well, I got my... Like I said, my bachelor's here at the Y. My parents joined the church up in Canada in 1952 when I was six, and I sort of grew up hoping to go to BYU someday. I was the only Latter-day Saint in our whole high school there in Sudbury. Mm-hmm. So I came to BYU so that I could be close to the church and then served a mission to Texas from 1967 to 69. 
I remember leaving Canada, it was 30 below zero, and arriving in Dallas, Texas, it was 90, to, 90 degrees above, and that was in February 1967. Wow. So I knew I was going the right place, or the wrong place, one or the other. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you were president of Mormon History Association. Was that the one that was in San Antonio? 2014. Yes. Yep. I, I remember that one well. So I'm sure that... Did you serve in San Antonio? Or I served in San Antonio. My first place was San Antonio. Is so it was like, like coming home. Because MHA's uh, conference in 2014 was just exactly where I served. Oh, wow. That was a fun one. I'd never been to San Antonio. 47 years before. Wow. Yeah, that, I really enjoyed that. and. And, and I've really enjoyed a lot of your uh, talks about the temple, and that's kind of why I'm here today. I understand you're working on a new book about uh, the evolution of temple. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yes, it's a culmination of a lot of research I've been doing on various chapters on, on the rise of Mormon temple consciousness in the 19th century. And the title of the book is tentatively The Wisest Course, taken from Wolford Woodruff's comments about the manifesto which are found in the doctrine and covenants where he says which is the wisest course to follow so it's going to be on that topic i haven't finished it yet but we're making some progress a topic like this is very challenging it's right on but i've i've published several articles already it's going to be a kind of a summation of several of those articles plus some new research i'm doing particularly in the Nauvoo period. Okay. Well, good. I, I'd like to kind of take us from Kirtland and Nauvoo to, to Salt Lake uh, as we talk today. So let's talk a little bit uh, about Kirtland. Um, Kirtland was the first temple. Uh, I know a lot of Latter-day Saints probably wonder, why is it that we don't actually own that temple anymore? Has, has anybody ever asked you that? Or oh, yes. It's a very good question. question. We wanted to sell it. Brigham Young made the order to sell it. Oh, really? Just like he did with the Nauvoo Temple. Oh. We needed the money to move west. Uh, the church was in, a, it was in a very, very difficult financial situation in 1845. And as, as it became very clear that we we're going to have to leave Nauvoo and to fund the exodus of 20,000 people, or however thousands of people are going to be, it's going to take a lot of money. And we had some properties, including the temples. And so Brigham Young and the Quorum of the Twelve made the conscious decision, not publicized to many people, wow. that we need to sell off the temples. And so uh, we did, or at least we tried to do so. Not just the temples, but other properties in Far West and wherever we could to, uh, to fund the cost of building those wagons to go west. It's not well known in church history that most Latter-day Saints went on wagons that were owned by the church. That weren't their own wagons. They had to give up those wagons at uh, Garden Grove, Mount Pisgah, Winter Quarters to send them back to Nauvoo to bring out the rest of the saints. And so uh, the cost of each of those wagons is very formidable. And so we needed, uh, when I say we, the church needed, especially Newell K. Whitney was the presiding bishop, ordering all these wagons and supplies from St. Louis with funds that were available to us from anywhere. Donated funds, tithing funds, property sale funds. And that was the genesis for the sale of the Kirtland Temple. Who did we sell it to? Um, well, eventually, it, it goes, it's a very complicated story. 
Uh, perhaps the, the leading scholar on this would be uh, Locke Mackay, who is now a member of the Quorum of the Twelve of the Community of Christ, okay. the Reorganized Church. He's written extensively on it. Um, others have. But it eventually, well, let's just put it this way, it went through private hands from one place to another. Martin Harris became sort of like the janitor for it for many years. We never received much money for it. Eventually, however, the Kirtland Temple falls into the hands of the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Okay. The Nauvoo Temple, we tried desperately to sell it, when I say we, the LDS Church, to the Roman Catholic Church. We invited uh, the Bishop of St. Louis to come up to, to Nauvoo and several priests, and they were taken on tours of the Nauvoo Temple. We tried to get $100,000 for it. I think it finally sold for $2. Oh, really? Because the Catholic Church finally decided they weren't interested in it. It wouldn't fit their needs. Some think it was sold to the Icarians who came in in, what, 48? 1848? Somewhere around there, but but it was destroyed by a, a tornado and then burned. Or That's so funny because... Burned and then a tornado knocked down the remnant walls and so... There was never any consideration for the Nauvoo Temple. Well, and it's funny because as we've rebuilt the Nauvoo Temple, we bought the, a Catholic school, I believe it was. I right know. Door. So it's funny how that switched around. Well, Nauvoo became a Catholic community. Still is predominantly a Catholic community, uh, traditionally. But um, there were other reasons why we were interested in... Uh, watching what happened to those temples. Uh, Ammon W. Babbitt, who was a recalcitrant state president in Kirtland and, and a barrister, an attorney, he had his eyes on reestablishing the church in Kirtland in the late 1830s, contrary to the will of the First Presidency. Wow. And so long as that Kirtland temple stayed there, it would be a kind of a, a magnet for members of the church to move there, and which was exactly what the church didn't want in the 1840s. Didn't want the church to gather to Kirtland, but to gather to Nauvoo. So there may have been some other reasons why the church was interested in selling off the Kirtland Temple, because it was, it represented our past, not our future. And the same can be said about the Nauvoo Temple, because William Smith, the brother of the prophet Joseph Smith, felt that there was argument over whether what belonged to the church, which belonged to the Smith family. William Smith joined with James Strang. You probably heard of James Strang, who was one of the. Go ahead and just tell tell a little. James bit. Strang was one of the uh, uh, claimants to succession to the leadership of the church after Joseph Smith's death, and he made a claim which was far more persuasive than Sidney Rigdon's claim ever was. Uh, James Strang, that the church should move to Wisconsin, not to the far west. And there he received a legend revelation to build a temple and to find new plates and to translate into the book of the law of the Lord, it's called. So he made this major claim and he tried desperately to get a hold of the, of the Nauvoo Temple. And the last thing the church wanted was for somebody else to get a hold of that temple. Which has led to some suspicion through the years that the church uh, torched their own temple. Something like the German Graf Spree, you know, that German battleship in, in South America that was scuttled by the Germans themselves. 
that we did the same thing. Well, there's no real evidence for that. There's no evidence at all for that. But we were very concerned that it not fall into the hands of enemies of the church. So it sounds like we were concerned that it would fall into schismatic Mormons as well. Well, exactly right. And uh, so we didn't torture our own temple, but we didn't shed a whole lot of tears over the destruction of the temple by that cyclone. It uh, kind of solved some problems for us. Although we never got any remuneration for all the time and effort we put into it. And so it, it wasn't really a factor in the finances. The thing that really financed the exodus was the United States government uh, in the form of the Mormon battalion in requesting the Mormon battalion to march to San Diego or wherever they told them they're going to be marching to California. And they, were, they paid a lot of money for that, some $22,000 to the families, individuals and their wives and families, who in turn contributed and donated most of that money, not all of it, but most of that money to Brigham Young at Winter Quarters to fund, help fund the exodus. So we owe the United States government something, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we talk a lot about how the United States government hated Mormons, but that's interesting to hear that they helped us a lot. Well, they did. And I shouldn't say it was the only or even the largest factor in our finances, the tithing of the church membership in England and in the United States, Canada, was a very important factor. But we desperately needed the funds. Hmm. And another interesting sideline, uh, we think of Missouri as being the great enemy of the church, and it was, of course, in the 1830s, the expulsion by Governor Boggs and what have you. But as we were moving west, many of the saints went down into Missouri on side trips to work for, this, for the season, whatever that might be, uh, building fences, harvesting crops. And in, uh, we have that, an interesting paradox that Missouri saved the church heading west in 1846-47. Wow. We're going to have to have schedule another interview. I can tell. I'm going to take way too much time. <laughs> in fact, I will tell you this. Uh, the secession crisis is another uh, topic that I uh, want to talk about. So I, I may have to reschedule you for another interview for that. So, all right. Well, let's go back to Kirtland a little bit. Um, so the Kirtland Temple was... And I'm, I'm trying to remember, I don't remember the numbers very well, but it was incredibly expensive, especially for a group of poor saints. Can you put, to you know, kind of an idea of in maybe today's dollars what the Kirtland Temple would have uh, cost the saints back in 1830s? <clears throat> the cost of the Kirtland Temple? Yeah. Do you know? Yes, we know that in terms of contemporary dollars, 1836 dollars, for the property... And for the materials and for the construction, somewhere approximately forty thousand uh, dollars. We know that the uh, looking at what that would be today, you're looking pro approximately at a fifty to one ratio in terms of the dollar equivalency. Fifty to one, so that's like two hundred thousand dollars today, or more than that. Two million. Two million dollars. Oh wow. Which I think is a is is kind of a, a conservative estimate, uh, because a lot of it was donated labor. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a lot of tithing labor. Uh, one sometimes men would contribute one in ten days tithing. Yes. They would work the other nine days, of course, and get paid for it. 
Many of them would, of course. So I think that's a conservative figure. Okay. I don't think it's ever been fully plumbed what the total cost is, but it would be in the in the millions of dollars for a church which had very little money. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. You know, there's a story about uh, uh, that the saints used to crush up their their china to make plaster on the temple. Um, is is that a true story or no? That's not a true story. Okay, <laughs> that's one of those Mormonisms that have come through somewhere along the line. There's no question that they sacrificed to build that temple, as did the sisters, and uh, uh, they they sacrificed in many many ways. Whether it was, you know, uh, boarding workers or uh, cleaning clothes or mending clothes or all kinds of things. But the, the, that story about mixing the uh, the crockery and everything else to make that beautiful, shiny outside veneer of the temple, we really don't have any firm evidence for that. Nevertheless, it was a beautiful bluish tinge to it, and that would shine in the sun. Uh, the... the uh, rising sun, the setting sun, because it is on a hill, you know, the, the Kirtland Temple, although there's all kinds of forestry around it today. I don't know whether that was there then, but it was con it was considered to be a beautiful structure at the time. Well, that's great. Um, let's, so the Kirtland Temple, as I understand it, but you're the expert here, so please correct me if, if I'm wrong. It, seem, it seems to me it served more of uh, almost a... Well, a tabernacle purpose. It was more of a meeting place than, say, our modern temples. Um, could you comment on that? Well, let me first comment on who I think are the best scholars on this topic. Uh, I've already mentioned Locke Mackay on the Community of Christ. Um, I would also add Mark Staker, who works for the Church History Library, uh, who has his most recent work on uh, Nauvoo, uh, on Kirtland, Harkin all ye people, is a remarkable study, and he talks much. Trying to interview him, but he hasn't. He talks much about the Kirtland Temple. Does a beautiful job in doing it. Um, let's see. Uh, do you want to close that? Is that making noise for you? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the heavens resound by Milt Backman. Is a remarkable book. Instead, Milt is now deceased but his work on the temple. Marvin Hill, Larry Wimmer, their economic study of Kirtland. There's some other great scholars, much greater than I would pretend to be. Although I've learned quite a bit recently about the Kirtland temple in the last several years, so I just wanted to mention who I consider to be some of the better scholars. Okay, I appreciate that. I will definitely contact them, see if I can talk with them. Now, your question was? It was more of a meeting place than, I mean, the, the, the Nauvoo Endowment didn't obviously exist, and the Kirtland Endowment was just being begun. They didn't do baptism for the dead. Um, so it seems to me it was more of a, of a meeting place, kind of like our Salt Lake Tabernacle now. Is, is that a true statement? Yes, in some ways, it definitely was a meeting house. There was no chapel in Kirtland. There was no chapel in Nauvoo. We were building temples long before we built chapels. So yes, it was an assembly place, but it it wasn't always just open for anybody. There were very selective meetings, particularly for priesthood brethren, that weren't open for everybody. Uh, 
usually for those who are about to serve on missions or had special commissions of one kind or another for special meetings. They weren't like every Sunday we're all going to meet there. They would have some of those general meetings from time to time, but it was really very selective in who was able to attend some of those meetings. So I understand when they, uh, the mummies were brought to Kirtland and then the, you know, Joseph Smith and the church purchased them, that they actually displayed those in the temple and I believe charged admission. Yes, uh, they obtained those mummies in 1835. Okay. And there's no question that, that Joseph Smith had begun the interpretation of what we now have as the Book of Abraham in Kirtland. And uh, Kerry Muelstein's work on this is very pioneering, I should say, uh, to show that the impact on the Kirtland Temple of the Book of Abraham has yet to be really evaluated and ascertained and plumbed. We know it had quite a bit of significance in the Nauvoo endowment, but there seems to be clear evidence now that that um, Joseph Smith's translation of the papyri in Kirtland had an impact on that on the Kirtland temple. You're giving me a lot of good leads here. This is great. Yeah, Kerry Muelstein has done some fine work on that. He's on our faculty. He and I are doing some work together. So... Yeah, they were shown. The Smith family took possession of them, or at least, shall we say, they were owned by the church, but the Smith family uh, kind of took care of them and would would invite people to come and see them, not just in the temple, but at the Smith home for maybe 25 cents to come and see them. Yeah, I, if I remember right, I believe Joseph Smith Sr. was actually one of the tour guides for those. Yeah, they. Uh, you might call them the, cura the curators. Okay. And they did that clear through to Nauvoo, too. Okay. So I think that would just be really surprising because our temples are much more closed now than it seems like. Well, it wasn't just in the temples. But no, the temples, you didn't have a recommend. didn't necessarily have to have a recommend for the Kirtland Temple. But for many of those meetings, you had to be invited to come. Okay. Other times, it was a Sunday meeting. Sunday morning meeting or Sunday evening meetings, they they come and sing and have you. It would be kind of like a chapel that way. It was ambidextrous in the sense that it was both for the public and for private. So as I understand it, the at the time they referred it to it as the endowment, but we'd probably more call it a, the initiatory or the washings and anointings. Do you know about the evolution of that in Kirtland? Was that right away that the temple started or was that after? That, that the development of the Kirtland Endowment is a progressive one. It doesn't come immediately. Joseph seemed to indicate something was coming, and it created an anticipation of something special in the Kirtland Temple and to coordinate with its dedica dedication in April of 1836. Uh, but even before that, there were what they would call special washings and anointings, and washing the feet as well, uh, which began in the Newell K. Whitney store and eventually migrated into the Kirtland Temple. So there were a series of what we today call preliminary ordinances that were given to priesthood holders for preparation for going on missions and as a blessing and a benediction for having worked so hard on the temple. I think there's a tendency in Mormon history to dismiss the, the Kirtland endowments as 
merely preliminary. I think it was, I think we do ourselves a disservice. I think it was foundational uh, for what's going to happen. Uh, the, you can look at the 1836 vision of Elijah, the savior of Moses, Elijah and Moses is a great endowment foundational to the history of the church. I like to see Kirtland as not just a, an early beginning, but a true foundation to everything that's going to happen in temple work. Certainly Wilfred Woodruff saw it that way. He saw it as, wow, this is church changing. This is so fundamental hmm. when he first comes to the Kirtland temple. If my memory is correct, I think some of the Whitmer brothers were they opposed to some of these newer revelations about temple worship and things like that? Or maybe my memory's not correct on that. Do you know, do you know anything about that? Well, you're talking about John Whitmer? Yeah. There's a wonderful new book out on John Whitmer. It's called The Eighth Witness. And it'll come to me in a minute who the author of that one is. I just left, lent it to someone. Uh, Ron Romig. Oh, okay. Of the Community of Christ. Mm -hmm. And yes, the Whitmers didn't quite keep up with the changing evolutionary doctrines uh, of the temple, but uh, very, very instrumental in Far West, in the settlement of the Far West, and but that's where they left the church. The Whitmers really do not play much of a part of the church in Nauvoo. But they certainly did in Kirtland and in Far West. So uh, back in 2011, Elder Bednar gave a, a talk about temple work, and one of the things that he cited was the uh, vision of Elijah in 1836. Um, it was kind of a surprise to me to discover because uh, that vision was actually secret for about 40 years, as I recall, and it wasn't wasn't revealed. A lot of times we think that you know this is the way it's always been done, and so it's interesting to me about how how sacred and secret, I guess, in sense, that revelation was for some forty years. Yeah, written on a lot of people didn't 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 know about it. Can you can you talk a little bit about that vision? You're talking about the vision in April, eighteen thirty six of the Savior. The sealing power, because that's the that's Elijah, the one Elias April third yeah, I think it was April third, eighteen thirty six. Uh three appeared and gave the sealing power. And in Elder Bednar's talk, one of the things that he said was you know, when we think of the sealing power, at least myself, I think of husband and wife being sealed together. But in Elder Bednar's talk, he mentioned how we were see being sealed back to our our ancestors. And I, you know, I think it was right before that Joseph had a vision of Alvin, um, and surprised that Alvin was in the celestial kingdom and and baptism for the dead. Although, even you know, there was no font in in Kirtland in 1836. <coughs> And so the, the evolution of baptism for the dead really didn't happen until Nauvoo, but the foundations, as you said, were laid in Nauvoo. And so it's really interesting to me to see how, I, I guess, rudimentary things were in Nauvoo. And, and, you know, a lot of these visions that we take for granted today, you know, the vision of Elijah, weren't very well known, uh, in, especially in relation to temple work. Could, could you comment on that? This is a, a classic case in church history of what I would call the reclamation of revelation. And in 1876, under the specific direction of Orson Pratt, many earlier revelations that were given in the history of the church, 
including section 110, which you're referring to, but not just 110. Section 109, which is the dedication of the Kirtland Temple. Section 121, 122, 123, the Liberty Jail Revelations. Sections 2 and 13, the Moroni and John the Baptist Revelations. Section 132, plural marriage, the celestial marriage section, were finally put in the Doctrine and Covenants and canonized in 1876 by membership vote. It was a reclamation of these earlier revelations which we had come to, be, to really begin to see after 40 years. Those are extremely important. And we reclaimed them. That They were always there, but they were never canonized. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it set a precedent for the church. In 1976, Spencer W. Kimball, looking back to section 138 today, our section 138, the great dream and vision of Joseph F. Smith back in 1918. It took us, what, almost 60 years to catch on to the significance of that? You could ask the question, why did we wait so long to reclaim such a powerful revelation? I remember reading that in, in the book called Gospel Doctrine, which was a collection of Joseph F. Smith's great sermons. I'm wondering, why isn't that in the Doctrine and Covenants? I'm sure others thought the same. Well, President Kimball looked back in the rest of the 12 with the, with the keys of the revelation saying, you know, that revelation is foundational of what we have to do now. And so they reclaimed it and put it at first in the Pearl of Great Price, if you recall, and then later in the Doctrine Covenants in section 137, 138, Alvin's, same thing, Alvin's vision, Joseph Smith's vision of Alvin. So this idea of looking back to our history often leads to a reclamation of revelation, which doesn't deny the significance and the validity of the original revelation whatsoever, but it, it indicates how the Spirit of the Lord moves and said, that, you better write it down. It reminds me in the Book of Mormon when Christ comes to the Nephites and he says, didn't I not tell you, did not Neph uh, Samuel prophesy that there would be many that would rise from the dead? Remember that? And Nephi's kind of shocked. He says, Oh, yeah, he did say that. And Sarah said, well, why didn't you write it down? Remember? It's right there in Third Nephi. Write it down. And, okay, we'll go down and write it down. That was the reclamation of Revelation. And that really is an open, it opens a great topic in church history about why studying our history is so important because sometimes we miss things. And I think you're, you're referring to here section 110 and these other revelations is a wonderful, Elder Bednar makes a great point of it. Uh, these seating keys were extremely important. They were written all down by Warren Cowdery. Joseph and Oliver didn't write it down. Warren Cowdery wrote it down. Joseph never refers to that revelation, if you want to know the truth, although he talks a lot about the substance of it. But it's not until Orson Pratt in 76, in under the direction of the president of the church, of course, we better get that down. <laughs> Why do you think it has taken so long? I mean, decades to get some of these foundational revelations. I don't know. But I think it's like a person's childhood. You look back sometimes and you say, you know, that was an experience that changed my life. I better give more, more importance to that. I better write that thing down. When I'm writing my family history, that thing really, really, that person really changed my life. Or, you know, in retrospect, Revelation is also retrospective, not just prophetic. It's also looking back. It's, and I think that's what happened 
And that's what continues to happen sometimes. We look back. It wouldn't surprise me, Rick, for a moment if we were to go back and say, you know, that proclamation on the family given by President Hinckley back there in 92 or whatever it was, that should go in our Doctrine and Covenants. That was revelation. It wouldn't surprise me for a moment. We'd have to go buy some new rev- Doctrine and Covenants. And so here we go again. But it's a living church. It's, it's, a, it, it's a discovery. It's discovering all the time from our past as well as our future. Well, I'll tell you what I think you know, that they should put in the Doctrine and Covenants as a new revelation. If you read the official Declaration 1, it's very business-like, very governmental. But if you read the footnote, you know, Wilford Woodruff says, I had a vision. I'm like, why are we not emphasizing the vision? I'd like to see, I'd like to know more about that vision. Uh, you know, even with official declaration too, I'd like to know what, more about that revelation with, with priesthood. Yeah. Um, I, you know, are there any other revelation? There's, there's one about, uh, was it Lorenzo Snow that saw Jesus in the temple? In the Salt Lake Temple, mm. I might, might have the prophet wrong. Or, do you know what I'm? Yeah, referring? that's so. That you know, I, I would love to see these sorts of things in the Doctrine and Covenants, and we need another Orson Pratt, I guess, to to <laughs> help us write these down. I guess. Well, we have wonderful prophetic leaders today who, uh, when inspired, will, if necessary, make all the reclamations that we need, and all the modern emphases that we need. Um, it is. We do believe in revelation, right? Past, present, and future. <laughs> we believe all that God has revealed. Oh, we didn't quite understand why that was so important. We do now, and he's revealing it today, just like the Savior said. Did I not tell you? Write that down. <laughs> it doesn't make the church any less true. In fact, it makes it more viable. <laughs> well, that's great. Um one last thing in Nauvoo, although this, ha- or excuse me, in Kirtland, but it happened in Nauvoo. You know, there are a lot of of Mormon journals that talk about uh, people who who spoke in tongues. That's not something we do now. That's kind of a, another evolution. What do you, you know, what are your thoughts about speaking in tongues in the days of Kirtland and and you know the evolution to why that's not really something that happens anymore? Well, it's still a key on the piano. We've never, we've never denied the possibility of speaking in tongues. Uh, I think it goes back to Joseph Smith's caution on abuse of the speaking of tongues, which he gave in Nauvoo, actually. Um, there are a lot of manifestations of, of uh, speaking in tongues in Kirtland. We know that. There were several in Nauvoo as well. But there were many joining the church who were kind of what excessive in it and joseph felt that that was of all the gifts probably the one most easily abused and i think that imprinted on brigham young's mind as well brigham young spoke in tongues many times when they got out here in the valley they they, they, they spoke in tongues but it's just gradually been not replaced but the other gifts have been emphasized more than the gift of tongues gifts which seem to reflect more our temple worship and our uh, reverence of certain gifts that gift of tongues is really not associated so much with temple worship. We have certain gifts in temples, especially discernment and and recognition of, of the spirit that aren't easily duplicated. And so I think that the rise of temple works kind of, kind of moved 
some of these other gifts to the satellite. Okay. That makes sense? Yeah. So since you mentioned Brigham Young, um, one of the things I uh, was reviewing was uh, uh, there was a lot of a lot of different music, and, and they used to dance inside the temple. I was I was reading um, that uh, Brigham Young said the temple was a holy place, and when we danced, we danced unto the Lord. And I thought, well, we don't dance in temples anymore. <laughs> I think this was after a, a wedding. There, there had been a big wedding celebration in there. And uh, it says here, the sisters retired to the side rooms, the brethren stretched themselves on the floor or on the sofas, and we were all soon in the embraces of a tired nature's sweet restorer, balmy sleep. They actually fell asleep in the, in the Nauvoo temple. Yeah. Um, so it, it just, you know, as I think about my experience at the temple, it's, they're very different. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit, you know, what do you, what do you think about those differences that, you know, the Nauvoo days and... and you know, what, what our temple worship today. There's no question that they danced unto the Lord in the Nauvoo Temple. You don't see that so much in the Kirtland Temple. But in the Nauvoo Temple, as they were preparing to move west, there was this great push that let's have as many as possible receive their endowment, even though the temple isn't dedicated yet. And so that what there were fifty five hundred people received their endowment in the Nauvoo Temple before they left between the tenth of December and the end of January, uh, and they were giving them round the clock. Brigham Young particularly was the one in charge because Joseph is gone by now, and the twelve holds these keys of seeming, uh, which Joseph had bestowed upon them. Uh, they were exhausted. Uh, but they wanted to bless their people, particularly those who had labored on the temple, and particularly those who had given so much in, in Missouri and in Kirtland, who had never received their, their endowment before, these great blessings. And I think they celebrated. There was a spirit of celebration and a spirit of anticipation. They're heading west. Um, there wasn't the formalization like we have today of the very formal, very specific things to receive in the temple. There it was a celebration. We finished this. All but finished it anyway. Let's enjoy it. Let's make a joyful noise unto the Lord and let's dance and praise the Lord. We can do this. And that's how they interpreted the scriptures. Anciently, they did the same sort of thing. And so under prophetic direction, they did. And they sang and they danced and they had public meetings, some of them. And it wasn't quite the same as our temple. You got to see, it was more in some ways like the Kirtland Temple. It was more, more open too. So they weren't trespassing on anything sacred. They were expressing some sacred feelings in a brand new setting, in a spirit of celebration that we don't quite have the same feeling today. We're not leaving Salt Lake. or If we all were heading out to Australia somewhat, this is the last time we're going in the, in the Nauvoo Temple or the Salt Lake Temple, we might do something similar. Let's, let's have a special finale, you know? And I think that's what they were doing. Hmm. Well, that's cool. So uh, it was in Nauvoo that we got a lot of the uh, a lot more of the temple ordinances that we're more familiar with. We got baptism for the dead. Although I guess the first baptisms for the dead were done actually in the Missouri and the Mississippi River, um, because the the Nauvoo temple wasn't completed. Um, we also got the the full Nauvoo endowment, whereas it was more of a uh, the preparatory things in uh, Kirtland. 
Um, can you talk about the, the evolution from Kirtland to Nauvoo as far as, as temple worship happened and, and ordinances? That's a big topic. <laughs> Which ordinance do you want to talk about? Baptism for the dead? Sure, we'll start with baptism for the dead. Well, they, the saints, you know, started building a temple in the far west and dedicated a spot in Adam on Diamond, too. Brigham Young did, uh, for the building of a temple. To the best of my understanding, those temples, had they been built, would have been very much, and the Jackson County Independence Temple, had those temples been built, they would have replicated much of what you saw in Kirtland. The, 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 one of the key developments between what happened in Far West, or shall we say in Kirtland, Far West, and Nauvoo was going to be the experience in Liberty Jail. And the experience of the saints who are being driven east from far west to Quincy in Illinois in 1839. This, this period is, is extremely difficult for the saints. They're being driven out by order of the governor. Where are they going to go? Joseph Smith's in jail. And Joseph Smith receives several wonderful revelations in 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 that jail temple of what we call Liberty Jail uh, in preparation for what's going to happen including sections 121, 122 and 123 which were re reclaimed again put in, in 1876 but as, as you read Joseph Smith's letters and study his life and his revelations in that period of time we're talking about uh, approximately six months in the winter of 1838 and 39, he, he, he is tra he's a transformed prophet. He's, he's not the same going, coming out as he was going in. There's an awful lot that he learns in this period of time, in this time-out period, that has a great impact on the Nauvoo temple, uh, temple ordinances, one of which is going to be baptism for the dead. The origin of baptism for the dead is a mystery. We don't know where and when Joseph actually comes to grips with this ordinance. We know that back in Kirtland, that revelation that he had, that vision of Alvin, may, well, we know that it happened, and where he wonders how it is that Alvin is in the celestial kingdom and he had never been baptized. Was this the opening bell of baptisms for the dead? Many scholars think so. Guy Bishop, one of the fine scholars, uh, argues this point. So do others. Uh, that, wow, how is it that he got in the celestial kingdom and he was never baptized? Well, there had to be, baptism still had to be performed. Was it, therefore, that, was that one of the foundation points for baptism for the dead? Possibly. When Joseph Smith is escapes from Liberty Jail, they come to Quincy, and then up they go to the river, up to the Mississippi, and in the summer of 39, as you recall, what's happening to the saints that are trying to settle in commerce? Well, if you know your history, there's an awful lot of sickness and death. Some 60 die that summer alone in Nauvoo. And... That was because of malaria? The malaria outbreak? Is yeah. And uh, the riverborne infestations and what have you, the swamps and what have you. And eventually, even Joseph Smith Sr. is going to die. But he comes down sick in 
39. Don Carlos is going to die in 40. His brother, Joseph's brother. Several others are going to die. The, the statement at the, at the Seymour Brunson funeral in August of 1840, it's coming out of a context of death. The great exodus east from far west to Quincy, and so many became sick and died out of this. Um, far more so, frankly, than, than we've given credit for. Uh, when Joseph, interestingly enough, gives this revelation on baptism for the dead, it's at a funeral. And there were many who were dying. And so there's this context of death. And where do we go for, for an answer to this, to this scepter of death? And it's in that context where Joseph Smith will reveal the baptism for the dead, a salvific response to the horrific deaths that are occurring. Um, where and when that began, we don't know, but it, it is pronounced and, and, and announced in that kind of a context. Now, as I recall, um, Alvin, did he die in about 1823? Is that yeah, he dies in 23. So... Um, if, if, I, if my memory's correct, you know, Joseph was, had the first vision in 1820. He's going through, Alvin was a big um, supporter of Joseph's prophetic gift. And then he died. <clears throat> what I understand is from uh, bilious colic is what they called it back in the day. And they gave him some mercury to cure him, which, which ended up killing him. <laughs> the cure was worse than the disease in that case. Well, that was often the case. Yeah. Bleeding. Bloodletting, things like that, kill more people than anything. Yeah. Well, what I understand was, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe uh, might have been a... Excuse me. No, you're fine. It might have been a Presbyterian minister who uh, said that, well, Alvin was never baptized, so he's going to hell. Um, and so that offended Joseph Smith Sr., and so he that was one of the reasons why he never joined with any of of those Protestant churches. Are, are you familiar with that story, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. am I getting it right? No, you got it right. William Smith speaks of this. Okay. William Smith is our source for this, the brother of Joseph Smith. Richard Bushman speaks abundantly of this in his book, Rough Stone Rolling. Uh, Sam Brown, Dr. Sam Brown, in his work on, on early death uh, in, in Mormonism, speaks of this in a beautiful study. Yeah. Uh, the the Presbyterian minister saying that Alvin had lost his soul because he had died without these blessings and ordinances did not go very well with Joseph Smith Senior. Um, that so that it, it it's reasonable to suppose that this was a factor, but it's impossible to prove that. It is certain though that Joseph Smith Senior himself is sick and dying in 1839 before Joseph Smith reveals baptism for the dead. And he dies within days or a few weeks of the announcement. And Joseph Smith is clearly thinking about his father and perhaps of Alvin. So you wouldn't want to dismiss this as, 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 as immediate factors for it. But you can't say for certainty yet. We haven't found anything yet where Joseph Smith says, well, this is where I came up with this idea. It was a process of revelation. We talked about the reclamation of revelation. We have to think about the progression of revelation, too. What is the answer to the Hans Mill massacre? Joseph now is not just leading a church. People are dying at his, for his religion. 
the ante goes up in his mind. You know, it's one thing to believe in what I'm telling you, but people are now giving their lives for it. The Missouri conflict and conflagration, all those who died, the sickness, the death, David Patton, all the rest, those young boys and men at, 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 Mount, at, uh, at Hans Mill. Well, what's my answer to this? What's, what's the Lord's answer to this? And I think Joseph is asking the Lord very carefully, said, we're having an H of a time. What, what, what are the answers to this? And I think that's where you have to see baptism for the dead coming out of a much bigger context. Hmm. These are wonderful insights. This is fascinating. Um, let's turn over to the endowment. Um, as I understand it, uh, masonry actually played a big role in in the Nauvoo endowment. I know a lot of a lot of those Masonic influences have come over the years, and it seems like at first uh, Mormon leaders acknowledge that freely, and then uh, over the years they've kind of uh, been more hesitant to to acknowledge that. Um, and, and actually, I know, I believe it was in 1991, some of those Masonic influences were actually removed. There's still quite a few there. But can you talk about how Masonry influenced the, the Nauvoo Endowment? How Masonry influenced the Nauvoo Endowment. you want a short answer or do you want a more? <laughs> there are many scholars who have written on this, uh, another one named Matt Brown and uh, Hogan, I forget his first name, over the years. Michael Homer, I believe. And Homer, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I'm talking Hogan okay. has written a lot of this. Uh, okay. There are some obvious similarities between the Nauvoo Endowment and the Masonry Ceremony. I think going back in history, you have to look at the red brick store, which Joseph Smith opened as a store, what, January the 6th, 1842. Uh, he was a storekeeper, but he never was much of a storekeeper. I don't know how he ever got into that. But he, anyway, it's that the red brick store is also going to uh, double as a, a Masonic hall because a lot of people in Nauvoo were Masons. Masonry was very, very popular at that time. Uh, anyone who was anybody would join the Masons. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Madison, all the rest of them. It was just the thing to be, a Mason. And so many Latter-day Saints in, in Nauvoo are joining the Masons for benevolent purposes. The Mason lodges are very benevolent, taking care of the widow and the family in the time of death, and there was a lot of death. And so one of the reasons why the Masonry is, is becoming important is to... to be a support for the poor and the indigent. It's starting at the same time as the Relief Society, which has started at that same place for the women, which I think is significant that the Nauvoo Endowment is not going to be closed to women. One of the fundamental differences between the what happened in the Nauvoo Temple and the Kirtland Temple is that the Nauvoo Temple is very, very significantly involved for women. Uh, Masonry never was, certainly wasn't at that time, isn't today for many other things. And so a big difference right away is who's going to receive the endowment. Um, the signs and symbols that you sometimes see in the, in the temple, whether they're the, the, uh, the uh, all-seeing eye or the uh, 
the uh, geometric symbols have some similarity to, to, to masonry. There's no question about that. Uh, maybe some of the, even some of the clothing would, would have some parallels. But Joseph Smith explained that he did it, that he may have borrowed some of it, but for an entirely different reason. Something that they were somewhat familiar with, but for an entirely different reason. To the best of my knowledge, the, uh, the differences are very, very stark when it comes to scriptural and, and prophetic and uh, Christian. Masonry is a benevolent and wonderful society, but it's not necessarily closed just to Christians. It's not, it's not a religion. The scriptural emphasis on the, on the novel endowment fundamentally different than what you see there. Although they use the same terms as lodges, they have a celestial lodge even in masonry. And some people will dismiss it right away and say, oh, it's just a perversion of masonry. And Joseph Smith does make some comparisons. But it's a, it's a religious devotion, not a benevolent uh, expression. Well, and as I understand it, you know, in the sense of the Masons, the Masons uh, that supposedly, as the story goes, that they were Masons of the uh, of King Solomon's Temple, and that the the Temple ceremony supposedly dates from those days. Although I believe that's uh, historically that's not true, but as the, the story is told of Hiram Abiff, um, I'd seen some of the Temple ceremonies. But those those aprons that they have are are like Masonic. Therefore. Like a stonemason, like you would use it. Whereas in the LDS endowment, they have the, the they have more of a ceremonial, uh, scriptural thing. So the the purpose is completely different. Um, so there's some really significant changes that Joseph made. The covenants are significantly different. Very very different. No, I I, I not to trans uh, trans not to trespass upon the sacred precincts of the endowment, but from a Latter Day Saint perspective. The endowment is more Christian than it is Masonic, and it's certainly more Abrahamic than it is Masonic. It owes much, I believe, as many scholars have could point to this, that Joseph Smith's work in the Book of Abraham had a major impact uh, on, on the development of the endowment. But it's also based on Joseph Smith's understanding, progressive understanding of eternal progression and uh, eternal improvement. And it leads to the, one of the other great ordinances, and that's eternal marriage, which is nothing to do with Masonic. Yes, that's where, exactly where I was going to go right. next. <laughs> I mean, baptism for the dead, if you're looking at the ordinances of the temple, baptism for the dead, which is salvific, based for, for those who have died, endowments for the living and eventually for the dead, and uh, marriages for eternity, for eternity, have nothing to do with masonry at all. But some of the trappings might be similar. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about the the, uh, the ceiling ordinance. Um, and I'm, I'm trying not to step anywhere I'm not supposed to when we talk about these. But um, as, as I understand it, I think it was Brian Hales has said that um, I originally believed in Nauvoo that the temple ordinances were only for the living, although I believe Brian Hales has said that they did seal some, usually like uh, maybe Alvin to Joseph uh, Sr. and some of those. So 
some of the participants were dead, or some of the well, participants by proxy were dead. Some of them were living in Nabu, but primarily most of the uh, sealing uh, to spouses and to mother and child were were primarily living people. Is that is that correct? Um, and then, well, baptism for the dead was all for the yeah, but as far as sealings, endowments for the living in Nauvoo and sealings, the great preponderance of of in a marriage circumstance of of a, of a woman or women being sealed to a man. Uh, there were a very few examples of deceased children being sealed to those families, but that doesn't really play much of a part in Nauvoo. But it kind of laid a foundation for it. But yeah, living ceilings, living marriages. Yeah, so it was primarily, there was no work, there was not really very much work for the dead in Nauvoo, other Except than baptisms for the dead. Of which there were thousands. Okay. And like you said earlier, they began first in the temple, in the river, uh, and then eventually in the wooden font in November of 41, which Brigham Young dedicates, and then eventually that's replaced by the actual font in the, in the Nauvoo temple. So, I mean, baptisms for the dead is a very big thing in that Nauvoo temple, which had nothing in Kirtland like that. Okay. So, and I understand that originally, that, um, like Elijah Abel, I believe, was baptized on behalf of his mother, because back then they didn't really have all those rules, and I believe yeah. it was Brigham Young who yeah. changed it and said, no, you need to be the same yeah. gender for the person you're being baptized for. That's right. But going back to baptism for the dead, Joseph Smith in section 128, in his... In, one of his talks there in, Nau in Nauvoo, which was later canonized, talks about baptism being the baptism for the dead being the linkage between generations. Remember this? He talks about it as the great link. Well, it, what, baptism for the dead isn't a sealing in that sense. You know, we never think of a baptism for the dead as a sealing, but he talked about it as the great link of families. And so you can't dismiss baptism for the dead as something that wasn't a ceiling. In, in, in Joseph's mind, baptism for the dead is more than just doing the ordinance for that person. It's a linkage of the generations in some way that I think needs to be further explored in our doctrine and our history and, and kind of laid the foundation for the later doctrines of sealing generations one to another. But it all starts with this foundational ordinance of baptism for the dead. Uh, there's a sealing emphasis on that. Elijah. Yeah, well, that kind of goes back to Elder Bednar's talk. Cause it goes he, back to Elder Bednar's he, talk. He talked about that. But but you don't think of that baptism for the dead as a, an ordinance, a sealing to the family. That's a, something else. But you couldn't have sealings of one generation to the other without baptism for the dead. So you, you have to see it as a foundational cornerstone to the later doctrine of sealing. Does, you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, which I think needs to be further explored in our history. I think that's an area that we could explore further, the, the doctrine of sealing of the dead in baptisms for the dead, sealing of families. Yeah. So one other topic I want to talk about while we're still kind of in Nauvoo is um, the law of adoption. Uh, that's always been something I, I haven't understood very well. Is that something you... I mean, can you talk, talk us about the law of adoption? The law of adoption. You mean the sealing of, of, of a person to a general authority. You're talking about that on law of adoption. Yes. <clears throat> Why did they do that in the first place? <laughs> a fascinating question. I, I don't think you can talk about the, the law of adoption without understanding 
the development of the doctrine of of, of uh, the spirit world mm -hmm. and and the doctrine of of, of 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 the gospel being taught in the spirit world, which really doesn't come to fruition in our doctrine and our history until Joseph Smith's great revelation in 1918 and what was going on in the spirit world. But it's, but it's a progressive doctrine about the souls of men and women that are living in the spirit world. Uh, are they being reclaimed? Are they being taught the gospel? Are they being converted? Are they being forgiven? Are they being, are they, are they, receiving the fullness of the gospel there. Baptism for the dead opened that door to actually begin to do ordinances for the dead. But could we be sealed to, the, to our ancestors? Like we do today, we take it so for granted they're just being sealed to your ancestors. Well, if they're not receiving the gospel, we wouldn't want to take the risk of being sealed to them because what's going to happen to us if they don't accept the gospel? Until it became clear, clear that the fullness of the gospel was being taught to them, the deceased, and that they were receiving the fullness of the ordinances, better be on the safe side and be sealed to a living prophet or a deceased prophet, maybe like Joseph Smith, and we'll be sealed until we know more clearly what's going to happen. Let's be sealed to the prophetic priesthood lineage of the prophet Joseph, the, the priesthood claim, and therefore it's a, it's it's a it's it's a done deal. Can I use that term? It's a safer way. Then we don't know what's happening to our ancestors. That's going to change as we learn better and more clearly, especially in 1877 with Wolford Woodruff, when he announces that from now on we're going to do endowments for the dead. See, we don't begin to do endowments for the dead until 1877. That's 40 years after Nauvoo, 30 years after Nauvoo. And the great significance of that is, you mean to tell me that they're receiving the fullness of priesthood blessings in their receiving their endowments there? It isn't just accepting the gospel, they're receiving the fullness of the gospel with all the priesthood blessings? Well, yes, that's what Woodruff manifests. He says, they are, therefore, we should be sealed to the priesthood that they hold, and not anymore to this other way of doing it, which was this, this roundabout, safer way. Now we recognize the doctrine of the spirit world in, in reclamation and teaching the gospel. You see, you have, to, you have to explore how that spirit world redemption doctrine reaches the point that now we can do endowments for the dead. Well, that's interesting because as I understand it, um, you know, in the 1840s especially, a lot of people joined the church and their families were very opposed to, to their baptism in the, in the Mormon church. And so a lot of people felt like, well, they're not going to accept the God. You know, the same spirit which exists now, experience no. the, it's no. going to be in the next world. And so... I don't want to risk being sealed to somebody who's antagonistic to the gospel. And so I'm going to be sealed to Joseph or Brigham. And how unpopular the church was. They knew that from their families. that They were ridden out of town over this, and their families turned them out of doors. And uh, They don't have a hope in heaven of ever joining this church. I mean, you know, you mean to tell me that when they die that we, 
not only do baptisms for the dead, but that they're going to have a whole turn of heart, I mean, a whole disposition change to receive all of this. And it took a while for us to reach that point. It's not one of these progressive doctrines. Right? Well, and so it sounds to me, because you're going right where I wanted to go with, with Wilford Woodruff and, and St. George. So, I mean, tell me if this is correct uh, understanding. So in Nauvoo, you had people who were, were worried their parents weren't going to be sealed or weren't going to accept the church, and so they didn't want to be sealed to them, so they tried to tie into a general authority line. Yeah, that's what happened. And then then as we came west, uh, and St. George was the first temple uh, completed here in Utah, um, so Wilford Woodruff was the first St. George temple president, so as, as he's uh, taking over as president, the thought process kind of changed and I don't know if it was Wilfred Woodruff who said this, but some, somehow we, we, we changed the mindset from, I'm not sure if they're going to convert to, you know what, everybody's going to accept the gospel in the, in the next world. Is, is that a correct portrayal of what happened? I don't think it was ever understood that everyone would accept it. They all have their agency. Uh, but everyone would have the opportunity to accept it. Not Acceptance isn't the right word. Acceptance is just opening the door to actually living it. Uh, there would have to be the same ordinances and the same change of heart that would occur in the spirit world existence as it did here. Um, it would have to be repentance and the whole process of, of, of salvation in that situation. Um, so acceptance is just part of it. It's actually undergoing this mighty change in, in their lives, in their spirit world existence which we came to understand fully, more fully at least, in 1918 with Joseph Smith and his great vision of the dead. So, we were talking a little bit about the law of adoption, um, St. George, and uh, just, so how long, I guess, did that continue uh, happening well, in St. George's? Wilfred Woodruff signals the end of it to begin to end it as early as 1877, but he wasn't present at church until much later. Um, when his, his revelation of 1893-1894 ends it, when he says we will no longer do bad, uh, uh, such adoptions in the temples, and he instructs the temple presidents, the four temple presidents at that time, Salt Lake, uh, Manti, St. George, and Logan, to desist from, from any more adoptions. And so it ends then, in 1893-94, with a, the statement from President Wilford Woodruff. It never, sat, he, it never sat well with him. The whole idea it wasn't quite clear. And especially after they begin to do endowments for the dead, he recognizes, oh, no, we're not going to do this anymore. It's, it's with our families. So, But during its heyday, I, I don't know how many hundreds of people were sealed to the Joseph Smith, uh, you know, uh, in the, in that form of the law of adoption, and to Brigham Young and Willard Richards and John Taylor and many of the general authorities. So, and as I understand it, John D. Lee was sealed to Brigham Young as a son, right? Yeah, Even John though he D. was older, wasn't he older than Brigham Young? I didn't make any difference. <laughs> it was a spiritual adoption, in return in which they would do physical things for the family to help. Um, it had a social aspect to it. In fact, the whole 
much of the 1847 migrations and 48 migrations too of the saints are built around this concept of tribal families. Brigham Young's family with all of his real children and adopted spiritually all with him and Willard Richards and Heber C. Kimball and they're going up by my family. Is this kind of like the 12 tribes of Israel kind of a thing, or is it different than that? It's the 12 tribes, but they were it, it, by adopted family. So it, it, has a, it has a role for a while. So um, you, you mentioned also something about uh, the endowments for the dead were a reaction to some other things going on in, in Salt Lake. Could you, could you talk about that? You're talking about spiritualism? Yes. Well, that's only one factor, but it is a factor. Um, spiritualism, the, the, the practice of communing with the dead, adulterated today by Ouija boards and things like this and telekinesis and paranormal. But, but spiritualism is uh, well known in American history as flowering after the Civil War with so many dead and lost and the, the great desire of many families to know what happened to their sons or their fathers or their brothers and how did it happen and you know this great desire for resolution which war does not allow for in many cases led to many people seeking the dead through spiritualism which is knocking on tables uh, spiritual writing from the other side you know through seances and what have you um, this really kind of flowered in America after the Civil War, and uh, it was a uh, factor in the rise of the Godbyite movement. William S. Godby and some of his f intellectual friends from England who broke with Brigham Young over his uh, economic policies, not trading with, with Eastern merchants and, and, and what have you. Brigham Young was very much for you know, we'll, we'll make it ourselves, we'll be self-sustaining, we, we don't need to, 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 to deal with the Eastern merchants, all of which flowers after the coming of the railroad, all this new merchandise and the economics. Economics, as Leonard Arrington in his great book, Great Basin Kingdom, is a factor in a lot of our doctrines, a lot of our organizations. And so the Godbyite movement is an economic, uh, negative reaction to, to Brigham Young. But they have to have a, a, a theological underpinning to it and they fasten on spiritualism. And Amos Lyman, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, is converted to them and becomes quite an advocate of spiritualism, which really isn't a religion at all. It doesn't believe in the atonement of Christ or anything like that. But it does believe in communing with the dead. In the 1870s, there's a lot of comment by general authorities, leaders of the church, particularly Orson Pratt, about that this is a counterfeit. Uh, but it has its place. It, we understand that why people are, are, are seeking the dead. Was that a factor in the beginning of endowments for the dead in the church in 1877? I claim that it may have been one of the factors uh, to begin to address how we really believe about this. There is redemption for the dead, but it's not that way. It's another way. So was it a factor? I argue this probably was one of the factors. 
The coming of the railroad certainly was a factor. In the, in the re-establishment of the Relief Society in 1867, all the auxiliaries, we needed to have a response to all these new philosophies that are coming down the track. Uh, the new religions was the building of the St. George Temple in 1877, some of a response to that, maybe. But I think it's a reclamation of much of what we had done in Nauvoo and all the way back to Kirtland. Oh, it's a progression of our theological understanding of temple work. If you're going to have baptisms for the dead, why wouldn't we have endowments for the dead? It's a logical progression in my mind. But it didn't come immediately to the saints. It was, took a while for that to get there. Hmm. Interesting. So was William Godby, was he ever a Mormon? or? Oh, yeah. He was a very, very strong Latter-day Saint. I, I'm not... There was, a, there was a coterie, a cluster of intellectuals. Harrison was another one. Um, trying to think of all the other ones. There were, there were, there were a, a small number of astute intellectual Latter-day Saints who broke with Brigham Young in the 1870s who thought they knew the gospel a little bit better than Brigham Young did. But they thought that they knew economics better than Brigham Young did, and they broke over the church with that. The Salt Lake Tribune starts with the Godbeite movement, which was very negative, of course, against the church. It still tends to be a little bit on that side, but that's its history. <laughs> that's interesting. All right, so... Um... So I guess 1893, uh, Wilfred, is that, is that one of those revelations that we need to reclaim um, <laughs> for, as far as getting rid of the law of adoption and now you're just sealed to your family as far back as we can trace? I think that's the doctrine of readjustments. There's reclamation and adjustments, a coming of an understanding. Oh, this is what this means. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I would just like a new edition where we've got that, that revelation in there. I'd, I'd love to see that one. I think it goes back to our eighth article of faith. We believe in that all that God has revealed. Now we have to understand that a little better. All that he is revealing and all that he will yet reveal. It's a radical theology. Yeah. Revelation could mean radical change. And the manifesto, for instance, of 1890. Ending plural marriage is a radical thing. That's actually where I wanted to go next. So Maybe revolutionary about... would be a better term, but you know what I mean. It was not a little thing. <clears throat> so, because that was a big part. I know you gave a presentation at the uh, Sons of Utah Pioneers a while back, and, and that was one of the things that struck me was you said, in Wilfred Woodruff's mind, you know, there was all these polygamy prosecutions, and it was more important to save the temples because at that time... You know, what, what was going on there that we were worried about losing all the temples? Well, we were losing the temples over this fight with the United States government on plural marriage because the church wasn't going to give that up. Wilford John Taylor dies in hiding in defense of it. Uh, there's no question that we were... Plural marriage was a very, very major commitment of the church. And it was it defined us, and we were commanded to live it. A lot of saints today think, "Oh, this is just we're going to stop this." This was a huge deal. Um, here, I read from the official declaration, which is the footnotes to to section to dec declaration number one. Wilfred Woodruff says, and I've got other evidences of this, and times other places he said it. He said the question is this. 
which is the wisest course for the saints to pursue? Latter-day Saints to pursue. To continue to attempt to practice plural marriage with the laws of the nation against it and the opposition of 60 million people and at the cost of the confiscation loss of all the temples and, all, and stopping all of the ordinances therein, including for endowments for the dead now, both for the living and the dead, or after doing and suffering what we have through our adherence to this principle, cease the practice and submit to the law. What's the wisest course? And the whole question of how Wolfram would have reached the conclusion long before this, long before the fight over the United States government and the, and the Evans-Tucker Act and the confiscation of our properties. Well, the wisest course is what we've been doing since Nauvoo, since baptism for the dead. And now endowments for the living in Nauvoo and now endowments for the dead in St. George. Are we going to give up all this for what you would have to say in his mind was a temporary subset of the law of eternal marriage? If I will command, I, I will, says the Lord, on plural marriage. If I do command, it's, in other words, it's not a permanent law. Book of Mormon makes that very clear. Uh, Wilford would have understood that it has its place at a certain time. But are we going to give up the eternal doctrine of, of redemption for the dead for a temporary subset of eternal marriage? Which is the wisest course? Was he selling down River, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, Wolf, uh, John Taylor? Not in his mind. He had received clear revelation that how can we hold on to what they taught and still make a major change? And uh, tremendously courageous to do what he did. And it took a man like Wolf Woodrow because he was, he was bathed in the water of pearl marriage. If you, in that sense that he had his own, had five wives. He'd, he'd suffered with all the rest of them to live it day by day and he wasn't going to give that up for any little thing, you know. But he says he received revelation from the Lord saying, time is up on this one. But redemption for the dead is an eternal law. Temple work is an eternal thing. Plural marriage is a temporary subset of an eternal marriage law. Right? Mm -hmm. Very, very important though. We gave our lives for it. Went to prison for it. We fought everything for it. It was a major junction in the history of the church. But did we sell our soul? Did we sell them down the river? Not in Wilford Woodrow's mind. Because they... Even in Brigham Young's mind, they had the full understanding of temple work hadn't developed. Even in Joseph's own mind, it was a line-upon-line line thing. So this is where this has now come. We we're doing all these millions of ordinances. Are we going to give all this up for this? What's the wisest course? Fascinating. So that's the title of the book I'm doing. <laughs> Hopefully we'll be done soon. <laughs> Well, I will definitely uh, help you sell that book. So it sounds sounds very interesting. But in a very real sense, let me just say this last thing. Our surrender, a plural marriage, was in many ways our greatest affidavit to the significance of temple work. Because what you surrender for something else is a testimony of how that something else is so important. And that's how we can reclaim and should understand plural marriage it was what the Lord asked us to do, 
for that period of time and a great sacrifice to do it. And to give that up after all that we had gone to prison for is the greatest statement of how significant temple work has become. Well, and a lot of people had a problem with that because they didn't believe, they, they believed that plural marriage was more important. A small number. I think you have to see it. Despite all the problems that we had in surrendering plural marriage, and we did, we had to come up with another manifesto in 1904. And there were breakoffs down the road over this whole thing. But it's always a very small number who claimed that. The great majority of the church recognized, you know, the time has come, let's move on. So, uh, looks like 1893, 1894, you know, we've, we've changed from the law of adoption to kind of what we have now. Actually, it was, it was, it was scaling down long before that. I've gone through all the, these records, I've seen them. The number of, of, of adoptions was declining all through the 70s and 80s. It was not a big thing in the 1890s, it was, it was the death knell in 1893. But the, the rush was now to family work through the 80s and early 90s. Uh, it's hardly even understood amongst many of the church members at that time. Well, yeah, so my question was, to me that was pretty big. I mean, even, even if it was declining, that was kind of a big... Oh, it was. It was the beginning of the genealogical society. Right. The whole work of doing work for the dead. Another reason, by the way, for the, for the demise of the law of adoption and the rise of endowments for the dead and everything else was the growth in genealogical societies and genealogical research worldwide. Um, you really have to study that phenomenon about how genealogy becomes a major th hobby of a lot of people. And the development of societies worldwide in the 1880s, 1890s. This, this, and it has something to do with the wars, um, um, but there's this same thing going on worldwide about reclamation of family histories and the availability of records. We didn't have the records that we wanted to have in the 60s and 70s. So only as with the railroad allowing for the quicker movement of records and postage and and people be able to get their records where, where it is an impetus for this. Um, so there are a lot of things happening outside of just Mormonism, which are, which are factors in all of this equation. Major things. Interesting. So what are the big, you know, let's, let's use 1890 as kind of our cutoff point. What are the big things that have happened between 1890 and today as far as the temple is concerned? As far you know, as any, is there any anything really? Change in temples. So well, I mean, as far because not just the growth in numbers of temples. You mean? Well, yeah. So kind of what I'm looking at in Kirtland, you have the, um, you've got the Kirtland endowment, and then in Nauvoo, you've got baptism for the dead, and you've got the uh, Nauvoo endowment and ceilings. Saint George, you have okay. We're getting rid of the the law of adoption. Um, is, are there any other kind of theological changes going on between, you know, 1890 and, and now? The doctrine of the gathering. The temple, temples were magnets and were a powerful factor in people gathering from Europe and England to the Rocky Mountains. Well, originally even to Nauvoo. The saints want to be where the temple is. Um, after 1900, 
And uh, the beginning of an understanding that we should stay where we are and gather to the local units and gather in your own nations, you begin to see temples now moving out from Utah. I think the first major expression of that would be the Cardston Temple. Is that under President McKay? No, that's back in the 19-teens. It's going to be in Joseph Smith's time. I'm trying to remember the exact date of the Carson Temple. But to actually build a temple on, on another, in another country that the people would gather there is a signal of changing, changing place of temples as a gathering force for the church in different nations. And of course, the whole story of temples in modern times has been building temples where the saints are especially under President Hinckley, is there to gather to the temples in their own nations. President McKay with New Zealand, England, and Swiss temples, you know, the international growth of the church, gathering to your own, in your own nations where the temples are. And you, you're seeing the temples going to where the people are rather than the people coming to where the temple is. It's, that's, that's a major change. Um, in, in the whole story of the growth of Mormonism. So you say that started in about 1910? Certainly with the Cardston Temple. Okay. And then the 50s was, I believe, New Zealand, is that right? 56, we're looking at, well, that was the L.A. Temple, and then 50, just right around that same time, the New Zealand and the Swiss Temples, David O. McKay. Okay. And, it, and then it, it, it has just compounded ever since. And then President Hinckley just went like a rocket. Yes, under President Hinckley, there's no question that the internationalization of the church, President McKay's vision of it, really solidifies it with him and the taking of the temple to where the people are. But this thing about the gathering, the doctrine of gathering in the temples, goes clear back to Kirtland. That's why they were gathering there, was because of the temple. That's why they gathered to Nauvoo, all the saints coming from England, right? And that's why they're gathering to, to the Rocky Mountains, because the temple is a very, very... It wasn't only an economic reason for them gathering. There was no question about the economic factor. It's going to be a better, maybe a better life than we had in, in Devonshire, you know, in those days. But the spiritual aspect of it is going to be the temple. And are we going to give up this? for whatever reason, you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, in Greg Prince's biography on President McKay, there was a very interesting story about a proposal for a temple ship. Do you yes. know that story very well? Yeah, you I know story. Talk about like that a hope story. ship. It, caught, it had a lot of traction at one time. Pretty hard to keep sacred a ship, though. <laughs> and I think that was the thing that sunk it. The idea that, oh, we can have this boat that would be a dedicated temple. And it had a tra the reason it had traction is that it could go to places where the saints were. You know, you could go to the islands and different countries all over the world. But I think they were, I don't know. I remember studying that when I was studying the, the life of David O'Kay years ago uh, when I wrote the history of Brigham Young University. Shadow wrote the history. That this is going to be difficult to keep a ship afloat that's a temple and keep it sacred 
uh, going all over the place and having it serviced and everything else, plus the cost. Do you think was the, what was the bigger issue? Was it the cost? Or I can't you tell you. I don't know. It's it's a combination of those and other factors. Well, as I recall, I, I believe it was President Dyer was was concerned because there's that scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants about on the waters. Yeah, I don't know. If that was so much a factor, but I think it it was a combination of how we're going to keep something like that sacred and how we're going to keep it, how we're going to finance it and. It didn't have the gathering impulse also, which the Swiss temple had for the Swiss folks in Europe or the New Zealand temple had for the folks in New Zealand, you know. It, it, it didn't have that permanency that we're here to stay. And I think that was probably the bigger factor, the, the gathering factor. Well, great. Well, I know I've taken a lot of your time, but I really appreciate you you sitting down with me. Do I get a copy of some of this stuff? Yeah, or you got, sure. Do we see this? Or, <laughs> when does this go up? Do you edit this? I'll, I'll definitely give you some warning on that. So, but yes, um, I'll, I'll I'll be happy to send you a transcript and that sort of thing. So, do you have any last thoughts about the temple and temple development? Well, we didn't get into the whole idea that temples preceded the Kirtland Temple. The whole doctrine of the temples go clear back to the beginning. Of the, you know, it's been there from the beginning. It wasn't an, a later overlay. I think you could clearly make the argument that Moroni taught temples with his turning the hearts of the fathers of the children in 1823. Um, uh, Sister Beck makes that point in one of her talks very, very well, that the, the doctrine of eternal salvation for the dead goes clear back to Moroni, glad tidings from Camorra. And then, you know, there's that clear, I make the argument in this forthcoming book that there is a clear connection between the very, very beginning of Mormonism and what's happening in temple work today. It's the same church as it was from the very beginning. Contrary to some critics say, oh gee, we're hardly the same church at all. By looking at plural marriage, you might argue that. But if you look at temple work and how it developed and, and how it was understood by those early leaders of the church, I think he, I make the argument, and I think it's very clear that it was there from, it was in our DNA from the start. Oh, great. Well, it's, uh, I thank you, thank you for letting me uh, take your afternoon here. Yeah. <laughs> I told you, Bill. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, once again, thank you for participating in the Gospel Tangents, and uh, I'll have to make another appointment. We'll talk about the secession crisis next time. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Rick. Mm -hmm. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Richard E. Bennett, professor at BYU, not to be confused with me. So uh, he's much shorter than me, uh, but a very, very cool guy, and he's got a great name, I have to say. So hope you enjoyed the uh, updated audio. Uh, once again, the first time I've shown this entire thing on video and audio. So anyway, thanks again, Dr. Bennett. Really appreciate it. If you like what we're doing here on Gospel Tangents, please become a paid subscriber at gospeltangents.com or patreon.com slash gospeltangents. We've got full transcripts on our website at gospeltangents.com. And if you'd like to check out some of our other conversations, click over here. Thanks. <laughs>